Well, good morning. For those who don't know me, I'm Bruce Drugsma. I'm the community and connecting pastor here at Wise Out of Free Church. Thank you, worship team, uh, for leading us in worship this morning. We appreciate you guys. Uh, yeah, it's a pleasure, pleasure to worship with you this morning. I want to start by just stepping back a little bit. Um, if you remember, for those of you that have been around Wise Out of Free Church for a while, you know back in the fall, Kevin felt led by the Lord to have us start looking at Exodus back in September, October. And if you remember, we started that process looking at the life of Moses, uh, and then we got to the plagues, and I stood in front of you and did a sermon on the frogs uh, shortly before COVID hit. And here we were doing the plagues as it felt like a plague was collapsing around us. And God was moving and doing some stuff. And and back in May, May 20th, I actually looked it up to find the email. May 20th, Kevin emailed me and asked me to preach this morning. And he said, we're going to be doing a series looking at the laws and justice in the Old Testament that God gave Israel. And I'm titling the series Freed to Love to talk about how the laws bring freedom and justice. And then George Floyd happened. And so I don't think it's a coincidence that God has been leading us into this time and leading us through Exodus because I think God's doing something. And I think it's our job as a church to pay attention and to look at why are we studying this now and what is God trying to speak to us? And so last week, Kevin talked about the Ten Commandments, and he talked about the first five and the second five, and the second five, he talked about being specifically, as he called it, community rules for dummies, which as the community pastor, I didn't take offense at, but I was tempted to. But community rules for dummies, this idea that this is what society at its most basic should look like. And we're going to go into Exodus 21 and 22 this morning, looking at where God goes with that. And at some level, it's easy to sit back and go, how do you need to elaborate on do not murder? It's pretty obvious, pretty straightforward. Do not commit adultery. Why is elaboration needed? Why do we need to get more specific? But anybody who's grown up in school knows that do not cheat is a pretty easy rule too until you start working in groups and working with partners who don't do their fair share or maybe you're the person who didn't do your fair share or you're starting to cite sources and did I know that idea already or should I cite it? What if I paraphrase it and all of a sudden do not cheat gets a lot more complicated? And so as we look into this, we're going to start to unravel them, but it's going to get even more complicated because as you look at the Old Testament, there really were three different types of laws. You had these moral laws like do not murder that were pretty universal, but you also intermixed with them, you have these civic laws on how they as a country and a people are supposed to function. Things like um, that the Levites are to be the judges and, to, and, and how they as a society are going are gonna to move and function. And then you also have their ceremonial religious laws like how to do sacrifices and what foods not to eat. And then all of those laws start to interplay with each other and it gets more complicated still. Take, for example, Leviticus, uh, everybody's favorite book, Leviticus 4 and 5. And in Leviticus 5.11, we read about the sin offering, one of two mandatory offerings. When you sin, you have to do a sin offering. And it also gives you this like economic gradient. If you can't afford a bull, do a ram. If you can't do a ram, do a goat. If you can't do a goat, do two doves. If you can't do two doves, do two aphas, like a big handful of fine flour. 
And, and that seems pretty straightforward, but then jump ahead to Leviticus 19 and they start talking about how farmers are not supposed to go back and re-reap their field and how they're supposed to leave some on the edges so that those in the community who have absolutely nothing can come along and take the gleanings, the leavings, and take them and turn that into food. But it's more than just turning it into food because if you are flat broke and you can't afford two doves, God is still accessible to you because you can go to that field and you can glean and you can take some of those leavings of wheat and you can, by your physical effort, make your offering and bring it to God that even if you're flat broke, God is still accessible to you. And now we see that the civic law and the religious law interplay because if somebody in power reaps their field twice, they're taking away from somebody vulnerable not only their access to food, but their access to God. And now we see where the civic and the religious and the moral start to interweave. And it's really tempting to get to Leviticus and, and Numbers and decide that these don't apply to us because we live in a new covenant, right? Jesus Christ died and was resurrected on our behalf and we live in a new covenant and these laws, Bruce, don't really apply anymore. But there's still lessons we can take from them. And I would encourage you, as confusing and, and, and hard to understand as these laws can be, don't bypass them because you miss out on seeing God's heart and you miss out on seeing his, his heart for his people. And so I want to give you three lessons this morning from these laws in Exodus 21 and 22 that I want us to, I want us to have. And, and I want to pause be, uh, one last time and simply say that I have Exodus 21 and 22. It's two chapters. There is no way I can share everything about all of those laws. It's just too much. So I'm going to skip some parts, but I'm going to try and bring principles forward. And the first principle is this. God's laws exist to protect the vulnerable. God's laws exist to protect the vulnerable. And we read that right away in Exodus 21. I'm going to read the first three verses. These are the laws that you are to set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone, and if he has a wife when he comes, she is to go with him. And it's no surprise that they start with slavery and indentured servitude. They are coming out of Egypt. They are coming out of a society that abused them in slavery. They are coming into an economic reality where slavery and indentured servitude existed. And God is dealing directly with it because the temptation for, for them could be to move into this promised land and to move in and take power in a promised land and seek retribution for what they've felt. And God starts here for a reason. And he is moving them towards a best reality given the reality they live in. The focus here is on the protection of the vulnerable. The terms are very broad. There's a reason they say words like slavery and indentured servitude because God does not want them to create a loophole. He doesn't want to say worker and allow them to say a slave is not a worker, therefore the slave doesn't have the protection of the law. And so here it's not a condoning this behavior, but instead making sure that there is no loophole for abuse. The terms are broad so that the protections are broad. It's also significant that it starts with a limit of time. You're limited to seven years. You work for six, and in the seventh, you go free. 
It starts with a limit of time. These laws prevent the misuse of power and the prolonged control of one human being over another. A close parallel we have to what we're seeing here when they say indentured servitude, the closest parallels that we have in our modern society is the modern military and professional athletes where you are paid and given work for a specific period of time and changes can happen in there. You can opt in for more. You can be in, in, in professional athletes, be traded to a different team, but we don't view them as property. We still view them as people and they still have protections and they get out after a certain time. So as we see the word slave repeated again and again, we need to see two realities. Number one, the reality that these verses were abused in ancient Israel, and they were abused throughout history, including American slavery, including Jim Crow laws, continuing today in modern-day slavery and human trafficking. These verses have been abused. That was not God's intent, and that was wrong. And we need to sit up and pay attention to that. Slavery, as we see in Americans' history and continuing out throughout the world, is wrong, period. The term slave is used repeatedly to be as broad as possible so that there was no loophole. A servant, a hired hand, a person sold into slavery to pay a debt were all protected under the law. And the protection extends even when somebody abuses their power and holds somebody against their will. The protection was supposed to stay there. And so we're going to go on in in, in in Exodus 21 to verse 4. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master, and only the man shall go free. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and my children and do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall set him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be his servant for life. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free as male servants do. If she does not please the master who has selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. If he selects her for his sons, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. The, these rules in verses 4 through 11 are really hard and challenging for us to understand in our current climate, especially because we can see abuses that have been, that have been used throughout history using these verses. But we need to put in the effort to read the entire passage to see God's redemptive story. And I think that verse 8 is our key. If she does not please the master who has selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. These verses are about protecting vulnerable people. These verses are about protecting vulnerable people from abuse. Again, these are not control items that a master could give a wife and thus keep them all as slaves. Although some people would abuse it. They would have this, this servant and they would want to keep him, so they would give him, give him a wife and now you have to stay because you have to choose between leaving your family or staying and staying my, my slave. And so people would abuse that absolutely, but that's not what it was about. The idea was that this was all about protecting the female worker. The boss could not use her and then back out of the contract he had with her by marrying her off to somebody who was about to leave. Same with marrying her into his family. He can't marry her into his family without treating her like a daughter or daughter-in-law or marrying her himself and treating her like a wife. These closed loopholes that allowed people to abuse them and cast them aside. 
These laws were revolutionary in their day. Nobody had laws protecting slaves and females. This is a new idea. God is moving them from a broken world to a better reality. The idea was that if you took a servant into your home in this agriculturally based society, you were responsible for them and their family and you couldn't simply cast them aside if they were not useful anymore. We need to read this passage understanding that in America's history, there were Christians that used the laws of servitude in the Bible to promote and support slavery by saying it was God's will. See, God says it's okay. But that is not what we see. We see laws set about protecting the worker in an agricultural society. They had just left Egypt where these were flagrantly abused. And these were protecting the vulnerable population. And so as Christians, our challenge today is to look at the laws in our society. And look at us as people who stand in positions of power and ask ourselves, are we protecting our business's bottom line or the people that work for us? Are we protecting the employees in our workforce or are we seeking to protect our rights and privileges? What is our role as Christians? And I won't have time to unpack all of these laws, so I want to jump ahead a little bit to verse 18 and give you lesson number two. Lesson number two is this. God's laws exist to care for all people. God's laws exist to care for all people. Starting in verse 18, if people quarrel, not men, not women, not slaves, not owners, if people, if people quarrel and one person hits another with a stone or with their fist and the victim does not die but is confined to bed, the one who struck the blow will not be held liable if the other can get up and walk around outside with a staff. However, the guilty party must pay for the injured person for any loss of time and see that the victim is completely healed. Now I want to pause there to talk about this for just a second because here's the idea. If I come up to you and I injure you so much that you can't walk around without a staff, that means you can't go to work. And if you can't go to work, you can't provide for your family. So I need to financially be on the hook for providing for your family. That's what this law is saying. This is the first example of workers' comp in the Bible. That's what it's all about, and it's with that understanding that we move into verse 20. Anyone who beats their male or female slave with a rod must be punished if the slave dies as a direct result. And we'll get to what that penalty is. Actually, we've already gotten to it. I'm going to back up, but we'll, we'll deal with that. Just hang that there. But they are not to be punished if the slave recovers after a day or two since the slave is their property. If people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. An owner who hits a male or female slave in the eye and destroys it must let that slave go free to compensate for the eye. And an owner who knocks out the tooth of a male or female slave must let the slave go free to compensate for the tooth. And this is, again, a troubling passage that has been abused. And so I want to pause and point out that it starts with the word people. It starts with caring for all people. It doesn't designate. And then in the places where it does, it talks about slaves and it talks about women. Again, protecting the vulnerable, caring for all people. But in most cases, no group is specified except people. God's law cared for all people equally. In fact, the spots where it seems to specify a group, it's protecting 
a vulnerable group. And I want to stress again, the use of the word slave here is to make sure there's no loophole, that I can beat my slave if I can't beat my worker. God is saying no. He's drawing a hard line and saying there are no loopholes. And we have to be careful in reading and interpreting scripture not to read our history and perspective back into the text. Because in verse 20, where we read that the slaves were property, that's a really troubling passage in U.S. history that was used to biblically justify owning humans. And that's not what it's saying there. You have to take the whole passage in context. We can't ignore the verses before and after. The term slave is property when taken in this context was not an assertion of being that they ceased to be people and became property. Go back to the first few verses in verse 14 where it talked about if I take away your ability to work, I owe you money. That's what it's tied to. Because what would happen with indentured servitude is if you had committed a crime or if you had uh, had a huge debt, you could sell yourself into slavery and gain the money for your seven years of labor up front to pay off your debt. And the idea here is that they're, they're your property, meaning that you, if they get injured so much that they can't work, you've already paid them for the days that they're not working and you are responsible to heal them. So you've already paid them for that work so you don't have to pay a double penalty for those days they're not working because you've already paid them. That's what it's saying. It's again an example of workers' comp and it was protecting them. You are responsible, it says, to make sure they are healed. It's protecting them. You can't cast them aside and demand that they pay you back for the work they didn't do because you've, you are the one that beat them. And then it goes on and extrapolates and expands on what that means and shows that it's not just eye for eye. It's, it's if I injure you, I don't lose my eye. I lose my right to all of the work that I had paid for because I have abused you. And if you back up to the, to the verses preceding in verses 12 through 14, um, it talks about um, an owner who hits a male or, sorry, anyone who strikes a person with a fatal blow is to be put to death. Again, no designation there, slave or woman, male or female, free, no designation. Anyone who strikes a person with a fatal blow. So when it says that if you strike them and they die, you are to be punished, that's the punishment they're referring to. These are not get out of jail free cards for the owners. These are laws holding them accountable. These are laws saying that you cannot treat them as property, but you have to be responsible for the family that you've taken in. That is the intent. And it also points out that God is not a protection for you if you abuse his intent. If you claim religious authority and abuse his intent, God is not a protection for you. Read on. If anyone schemes and kills someone deliberately, that person is to be taken from my altar and put to death. So he sets up these refuge cities where if you've killed somebody unintentionally, you can go there and wait for due process. You can go there and wait until the truth comes out. But if you schemed and they find out, even holding on to the altar of God is not a protection for you. And that's a sobering thought. Jeremiah 7 Later on in Israel's history, they will not follow these laws and they will abuse them. And and Jeremiah 7 has some strong words, condemning words. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in my house, meaning the temple? Will you stand before me in my house, which bears my name, and say we are safe? 
safe to do these detestable things? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? Sound familiar? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. And the law in Exodus 21 continues to protect all people and deals with kidnapping and there's no protection for the person who kidnaps, for the person who traffics that person, or for the person who purchases them. There's no protection. You can't stand before God and go, yeah, I didn't know when the truth was able to be known. It prioritizes people over animals. An an agricultural society, again, your ox is your income. And it says if your ox kills somebody, you need to kill the ox. It protects people over property. The business good cannot take precedence over the personal good. God's law cares for all people. As people, how can we live that out? Are we willing to sacrifice our own financial good or our own personal comfort to care for all people? Are we willing to set aside that which helps us but costs somebody else? And one example I can give is in human trafficking. Many of you know over the last several years, a group of us have participated in December, choosing to engage the topic of human trafficking by raising awareness are you willing to look for brands that fight human trafficking, even if it costs you a little more? Are you willing to shop at stores that care for their employees, even if it costs you a little more? Are we willing to spend more and give up our personal good and our personal right to protect another? God's law cares for all people. And lastly, God's laws are about relationships. And we're going to get into chapter 22, and I I don't have time to go into chapter 22 in full detail. And in fact, the first 15 verses are pretty self-explanatory. But I want to highlight a couple ideas. Because you'll notice that there's no residency program in Israel. There's no prison system. Nobody goes to jail. The value is on relationship and restitution and restoration. And the first 15 verses show how this works. If you steal, you are forced to pay it back. We talked about that. With That's where a lot of the indentured servants came from. As I stole something, I now have to pay back double. I can't afford to do that because I was already flat broke. So now I can sell myself in, get the money up front, and pay off my debt. And now those laws that protected the indentured servant also protect the criminal. The guilty criminal is protected. They value relationship and restitution and restoration. Thus, the victim is compensated generously and immediately. The offender is forced to face the victim and the effects of their crime. The criminal is given an opportunity to resume a productive life and compensated fairly for their efforts. It's a different system than we have today. So with relational focus, we can see that the bride price, jumping ahead to verse 16 through 21, is about relational responsibility, not about property and income. It's all about relationship. God is redeeming a society and restoring a fallen world. The price of a bride was not based on her value as property, but on the value of the covenant you are entering into. Similar today to wedding rings. I didn't buy my wife a diamond wedding ring because I thought that's how much she was worth. I bought that wedding ring because that's how much I valued the covenant we were entering into. It was a symbol, not of her worth, but of how much I cared. And that's what the bride price was about. It was about showing that you were ready to take responsibility for a family. And there was no way to short circuit that. 
You couldn't just go and take something you wanted but had no right to. Verse 21, do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner for you were foreigners in Egypt. Notice that the same word is used. In Hebrew, it's the exact same word. So we can substitute whatever word we want there. Alien, resident alien, immigrant, whatever. But think of it in this context. Israel lived in Egypt for over 400 years as slaves, not converting to the Egyptian form of worship, not converting to Egyptian society. And that's the context that God says, you were that in Egypt, so don't mistreat that in your community. If someone comes into Israel but does not convert to Judaism, they were not therefore free game to be abused and mistreated. And the passage goes on, do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children the fatherless. These are hard words because God is very serious about this. It's about relationships. God will hear the cries of the vulnerable and mistreated. God hears the cry of the foreigner being abused in a foreign land. And lastly, we see a passage about money, but it's really not about money. It's about relationship. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Let me say that again. Do not treat it like a business deal. It's right there in the passage. Charge no interest. It's not a business deal. It's a relational deal. If you take your neighbor's cloak as pledge, return it by sunset because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear for I am compassionate. God is a compassionate God who cares for the vulnerable and the weak and the mistreated. And Jesus elaborates on this passage in Matthew 5. He says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. The law states they can't take the coat. So people were getting in the habit of taking their underclothes instead. They were abusing a loophole they had created in the law. They were going against the intent. And what's Jesus' advice? Give them your coat as well. Why? Because it forces them to face you and acknowledge what they are doing. It is much harder to look someone in the face and watch them take off their warm clothes and start to shiver. And hopefully that gets you to reevaluate what you are asking of them. So the question I want to leave you with today is this. Who are you in these passages And who do you see yourself as? Are you the person standing shivering in the cold? Or are you the person standing there demanding they give you your cloak? It's easy for me to read these passages and think about my work environment and my wife's work environment and ask myself, have I been abused? Have I been mistreated? Have I been let down? But the challenge for us as Christians when we read the Bible is oftentimes we see ourselves on the good side of the law and we are hesitant to see ourselves as the perpetrator. We are the disciples. We are not the Pharisees. We are Esther. We are not Haman. We are Israel. We are not Egypt. We are Peter. We are never Judas. And time and time again, God will condemn Israel for their failure to live up to his law 
And the challenge for us is to remind ourselves as people who live in a country that has historically enslaved and taken away from Native Americans and, and, and black people, we need to acknowledge that there are times we are on the wrong side of the law. That we are the people in power who have abused. Jeremiah 34, 14 says this, Every seventh year, each of you must free any fellow Hebrews who have sold themselves to you. After they have served you six years, you must let them go free. Your ancestors, however, did not listen to me or pay attention to me. And if we are honest as a Christian church across America and around the world, God would condemn us for the same thing. So what is God's law teaching us? It's teaching us the interplay between the civic and the religious. That our role as Christians is to engage in a broken world and help bring people to a best reality and not be content with the status quo. And I want to end with this verse that we've been, that we've been saying a lot over the last few weeks, Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God.